should I just go? Just go. All right, let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we ask your blessing on Gordy this morning with this text that seems upside down and backwards and uh, anything but what we would expect. Uh, we ask you to speak to us through it and speak to us through Gordy. Open our ears and hearts and eyes to your word this morning. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks. Well, it's already been a rich morning together in, in God's presence, just soaking. And uh, I believe that God has spoken through our worship and he wants to just uh, single some things out for prayer, for ministry, for the Holy Spirit to continue to, to work. There's, such, there's been such a, a tenderness. And if you're just joining us, we've been working through the book of Genesis in a series called Family Stories. Uh, encountering God in ordinary time. And seems like a strange title for a series, but basically we've been following the beginnings of our story and, and re reminding ourselves of, of the beginning because if you don't get the beginning of the story, the whole, the whole story begins to be a bit confusing. It doesn't make sense. So today I want to talk about today, uh, it, truth is stranger than fiction, and I'm going to be taking quite a bit of text from Genesis chapter 29, Genesis 30. And if you've ever thought that the only way you could ever truly be loved was to be something or be someone other than you are, this message is for you. If you've ever thought that if only you were better looking, or skinnier, or fatter, or smarter, or you were a better athlete and could score more goals, or you made more money, had a better house or a bigger, a bigger house or a better car or a bigger church with a better youth group. In order to be happy, in order to be loved, this message is for you. Because our story hits today at the core of a common human condition that is if I could just be something different or something other than who I am, then I'll be happy. Then I'll be loved. And this condition comes from an ancient wound we carry in one degree or another. It's a, it's a rejection that comes in various ways. I had a painful experience of this in grade two. I developed a crush on a classmate. Her name was Shannon, brunette, very cute. And we always had to line up outside the classroom when we went into our class. And I developed this crush on her, and so I began to strategically line up behind her every time it was time to go in the class. And after the third or fourth time, I thought, 
I'd point it out to her and say, what a coincidence it is that I'm always the one behind you. And she was quite warm. She responded very nicely. But the next time, as I was making my move, I noticed that she made a move and switched with her friend so that her friend in front of her became the one behind her. And I, when I saw that, what to her was a common sense female wise move uh, to um, remove the creep factor um, to me was a piercing rejection that went right through my heart. And I never thought about it two years later, but what happened is at that moment, I formed a protective wall around my heart that said, I will never let that happen again. Kathleen and I were reading through Jean Vanier last night from his book on the Gospel of John, and he writes how that children are extremely vulnerable and sensitive to rejection. And they form walls around their hearts to protect them from ever being hurt again. And we underestimate the power of that 30 years later. So I formed this protective wall around my heart, and here's what it looked like. I will never pursue a relationship with someone unless they initiate towards me. I'm here. If you like me, great. If you don't, it's none of my business. And it was kind of this aloofness that I developed through growing up through school. And I often found myself very, very alone. But at least I wasn't being rejected. And I was lonely a lot. And people want to be my friend, they know where I am. And to compensate for this loneliness, I began to try other ways to get love. And you know what? God helped me. God helped me become a star basketball player because I thought if I can't be a good friend, I can get love by being a star basketball player. And all the pretty cheerleaders scream my name because I'm making their school look good because I'm the high scorer. God helped me as I went into ministry, driven still as a pastor in my 20s. If I can't be, a relation, be relational and get love that way, then I will pastor the hottest youth group in Canada. And we grew from a little handful to hundreds. And thanks to a great team of young people that I had around me and a great pastor who, who believed in me, God helped me. We had a tremendous amount of growth. And I became in demand as a public speaker and I traveled across Canada and even to other countries because of the notoriety of this youth group, but I formed this false self. I was this person on the platform, and one day it hit me after I'd had this revival with screaming hundreds of kids, and we'd had this rah-rah, and I got off the platform, and all of a sudden, I said to myself, who is that guy? I didn't even know who I was anymore. I was this false persona that I had formed. And I felt like it was on this merry-go-round. How many have ever been on a fast merry-go-round and you know you need to get off, but you know you might do yourself more damage by getting off than staying on and you're about to puke all over the playground, right? That's kind of how it felt. How many have ever kind of felt that way in life? How many feel that way today? Don't raise your hand. Okay. 
And you know what? God, in his mercy, allowed a severe nervous breakdown that caused me to be a vegetable for years, where I had to learn to be loved simply for who I was in my brokenness and to realize that God's delight and love for me was unconditional upon my performance and upon um, any sense of these values that I mentioned earlier. So this story is about that today, and I want to warn you, the following material may be offensive to some. There's a lot of sex in this story. Viewer discretion is advised, and somebody said, all right, I was kind of getting kind of sleepy. So our story in review so far is that, is that God is on this relentless mission to restore and reconcile what was lost. And he's chosen not to do that, not to clean up this mess of the universe without us who are so messed up. And we follow the story of how he called Abraham and then Isaac. And we begin to realize he's not in a hurry. Have you ever noticed that God always moves slower than you want him to? How many notice that he moves slower than you? I mean, I, I, I yeah, he moves kind of like the drivers that are in front of me when I'm on the road. And so we come to our story today, and as Beth talked about so eloquently last week, Jacob, who is Abraham's grandson, he's a fugitive, and he's on the run from his homeland due to the fury of his twin brother Esau, due to the the theft of his birthright and the firstborn blessing. So Jacob's parents, Isaac and Rebekah, order him to, to flee, to be a fugitive, to go back to their homeland in Padam Aram. I'll show you where that is in a minute. Well, no, I'll show you where it is now. Um, I don't know if you can see this very well, but Canaan was in this area. And remember, Jacob had this encounter with God in Petra, or, or Bethel, rather. And, and moving up, he had to go all the way back to Haran, where his, his family, Abraham had left his uh, uncle, or Abraham's brother Nahor, Nahor uh, Jacob's uncle uh, Laban, and great-uncle Nahor. They were all in that area. So Isaac and Rebekah ordered Jacob to go back and find refuge there until Esau had cooled off a bit. And you remember he had that stairway to heaven encounter that Beth spoke about last week in this area. And then he, moved, then he traveled to Haran and he, he arrives in this area to a well. And wells were... Sometime it would be a good exercise for you to read the significance of wells in the book of Genesis. Profound. I mean, in that area of the world, wells were life and death. And Jacob comes to this well, and like most wells of that time, because of the nature of the life, the life and death nature of the well, it was a, um, a gathering point. It was a, it, it was a meeting point of many, many people. And shepherds would bring their flocks. And, and when, when Jacob arrives, he's he saw this huge boulder over the well, and he says to them, he says to all these shepherds, well, why don't you remove the boulder so that you can water your sheep? And they said, well, it's such a huge boulder. We want to be wise stewards of our time and energy. 
So we're waiting till everybody gets here. And then we'll just have to do it once instead of moving it back and forth. So Jacob says, well, listen, do you know Nahor? There's a town here named after him. Do you know the guy? And they said, yeah, we know him. And, and, uh, and uh, he asked, do you know Laban, my sister's or my wife's uh, brother, my uncle? And they said, yeah, we know him. Uh, and here comes his daughter right now. So along comes Rachel. She's a shepherdess bringing her sheep. And it's love at first sight. And she's waiting for her, her sheep to be watered. And Jacob, all of a sudden, has this amazing anointing come upon him. And single-handedly, he removes the rock by himself. A rock that normally took a number of shepherds to do together. And Jacob is immediately impressed, or, or Rachel is immediately impressed. And uh, finds out that he's a, he's a relative. So she brings him home to Laban, her father, and uh, there's this glorious reunion in a month of family stories where they catch up. And then Laban offers a job to Jacob. He says, listen, there's no point you being around here. You're such a handy guy. Why don't we pay you something? Name your wages. Well, Rachel, Jacob was already madly in love with Rachel and so he asked for a hand in marriage, but it kind of happened in a painful way. Look at this text. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. And Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. A friend of mine preaching on this one day says, Scriptures kind of doesn't pull any punches, doesn't it? It says Rachel's got a lovely figure and beautiful, and Leah, well, she needed glasses. And you feel this painful contrast between Rachel and, and Leah. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed, and I want to make love to her. He kind of didn't beat around the bush, did he? Just let's, come on, let's get it on. And so... What follows is so bizarre that I'm going to just read the scripture so you believe, that I'm, you believe it, that I'm not just making this up, all right? Here's what happens. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah, you know, the one that needed glasses, and brought her to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. So the question I have for you is how in the world can this happen? Verse 25, when morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Seven years. Why have you deceived me? How in the world can something like this ever happen? Well, thank God for the Jesus Storybook Bible. 
It explains how this kind of bizarre thing can happen. In the Jesus Storybook Bible, it gives us a picture. There's Jacob between Leah and Rachel. And this is how they were married. She had a veil on her. And then it was kind of getting dark when they went into the tent. Right? So this is kind of a modern day. Maybe Leah looked something like that. Right? And then I love the Jesus Storybook Bible because in the morning when Jacob woke up, <laughs> ah! Isn't that great? So, I love this depiction of Jacob. It's so real. He's in shock. And he says to Laban, explain yourself, uncle. You are that uncle that everybody told me about. So Laban replied, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. I forgot to give you the fine print, didn't I? I forgot the fine print. Actually, you didn't read the fine print, Jacob. It's your fault, right? Here's the fine print. It's not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, one week. Then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. Now, if you're Leah, can you imagine, first of all, the only way that your father is able to ever give you away is by deception. And he sells you like chattel. And then you're stuck with this guy who doesn't prefer you for the rest of your life. So I love the storybook visual of Jacob and Laban arguing and I found this on the, the internet. I think that's, that's Jacob's emotions. The Midrash, the Jewish Midrash on this is amazing. Jewish Midrash is where Jewish rabbis and scholars do commentary on texts. It's kind of like they take creative storytelling license. They, they kind of uh, fill in the, between the lines a little bit. And one commentary says... Uh, saw this incident of what Laban did to Jacob as God meeting out poetic justice to Jacob. The deceiver is deceived. Remember what Jacob had just done a few weeks before? Remember his father was blind? Remember he put on goat's hair and pretended he was Esau? And he lied to his father. Jacob believed the lie that unless he was somebody other than who he was, he couldn't be blessed. He, unless he was somebody other than who God had made him, he couldn't be loved. He had to be somebody else. He had to deceive. He had to lie. And he lied to his father. And in the same way, here he is on the darkness of his wedding night. He's deprived of the sense of sight because of the darkness. And when Leah removes her veil as he's making love to her, he's relying like his father did on the sense of touch. Midrash Bereshit Rabbi vividly describes the correspondence between these two stories. And he says, all night Jacob cried out to her, Rachel! And she answered, Jacob! Rachel, Jacob, Rachel, Jacob. And in the morning, and look, she was Leah. 
And he said to her, why did you deceive me, daughter of the deceiver? Didn't I call out Rachel in the night and you answered me? She said, there's never a bad barber who doesn't have disciples. Isn't this how your father cried out to Esau and you answered him? My take on this is this was God's grace for Jacob. There was an article I read this past week in the Vancouver Sun, which confers something I believed all along, is that when you tell a lie, your brain starts to believe it. And the more you lie, the more your, your brain actually will buy into that lie. That's why liars become pathological and sociopaths. Is they, they, they completely lose track of truth. And they believe that they're telling the truth. And God saw Jacob moving towards sociopathic behavior. And a sociopath is somebody who is unaware of how their behavior is impacting those around them. How their, how their actions, their words, their deeds are hurting people around them. That's a sociopath. And sociopaths are scary because they have no awareness of how their actions are affecting others. And this is where Jacob was heading. And God knew that he would perpetuate this brokenness unless he intervened. So how does God deal with Jacob? He confronts Jacob with Jacob. Through Laban, Jacob, Jacob, Jacob. Over and again, Jacob is confronted with himself. Liar, deceiver, trickster. Over and over and over until he begins to break up in his heart and go, oh my God. What have I done? He began to see the pain that he was causing by his trickery, by his lying, by his deceit. He was beginning to see the pain he caused because he didn't trust God, that he could just simply be himself and, 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 all, and that he had to always take things into his own hands. It's interesting that the writer Paul wrote in Ephesians, therefore having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Isn't it powerful that there's this connection between being who you are and us belonging to one another? It's like Paul says in, in tenderness, don't you understand? We're in this together. We're not competing. We're members one of another. We belong to each other, literally. We're on the same team. There's no competition here. It's going back to that partnership that God has, had, has decided to embark on with us. It's not only a partnership with God that we have in this mission. It's a partnership with each other. We need each other. We have a saying in the vineyard these days. We come together because we know we can't do it alone. But lying is pretending that we've come together, but we really withhold our hearts. That's why the story of Ananias and Sapphira was so brutal. Because God saw what they were doing to that infant church. They were, they were holding back themselves, pretending to be in community, but not being real about their addictions, their brokenness, their, their humanity. They had to be something more than they were in order to get love. So Jacob went along with Laban's plan. It says he finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. And Laban gave his servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. 
Rachel ma- uh, Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And he worked for Laban for another seven years. So here's Leah's anguish, I call it. Leah and Rachel both had anguish. It wasn't just Leah. They both felt they had to be something other than who they were. Do something more than what they were in order to be loved, in order to be happy. Rachel's anguish, of course, was, or Leah's anguish was that she was fertile. She could bear children, but she wasn't loved. She was not preferred. Rachel, she was favored, but barren. She couldn't have children, which was actually a worse curse in the ancient world than to not be loved by your husband. Let the guy take a hike. I need babies. That was, that was literally their thinking for, for uh, uh, legacy and, and passing on the family line. So when the Lord... Now, now here's the thing. This is a messed up, dysfunctional family, family. There's a lot of problems here. There's competition and strife that began with, the, with Jacob and Esau... There's competition and strife that begins with Leah and Rachel, and this comes to a full head with the story of Joseph and his brothers in, in, a, in the next generation, which we'll, we'll look at in the next couple of weeks. You see how generations pass on blessing, but they also pass on cursing and brokenness. So, But look at God. Does he say, you bunch of turkeys, I'm going to throw you out and start with somebody else? No. He comes and he works in our brokenness. I've worked with drug addicts that are battling heroin and they relapse and come back and relapse and come back and sexual addicts and people that... And I have been overwhelmed by the grace of God that comes in the middle of the mess. It's not like he's standing in heaven and saying, when you get your act together, then you can come to me. The the set that Travis did this morning pretty much preached my sermon. The embrace of God that comes in our brokenness because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. He said it is finished. So the Lord saw that Leah was not loved and he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son and she named him Reuben, which sounds like the Lord has seen my misery. The Lord has seen, get that, God's vision. God sees God sees. It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. Leanne Payne would call that being bent. I remember reading a lot of Leanne Payne back in the 80s. That that the Bible talks about being upright towards God. That uses that phrase. Well, what's the opposite of upright? Bent. Upright is when we get our significance and our sense of love and value and worth from our relationship with God. But bent is when we need that from other people and we seek that and we see this bentness in Leah towards her husband. Maybe he'll love me now. She's trying to become something she's not so she'll get love. She conceived again and when she gave birth to a son she said because the Lord heard that I'm not loved. She gave him the, he gave me this one too so she named him Simeon and Simeon sounds in the Hebrew like God has heard. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me. Maybe I'll, I'll finally belong. I won't be lonely and abandoned and rejected. Maybe I'll finally 
be attached and connected. And the word Levi means attached. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. The word Judah means praise. There seems to have been some healing for Leah here. It seems like that bentness went upright. And she began to find her significance and her worth and her value and her love from God. Then Rachel's anguish comes on. Then Rachel saw that she was not bearing children. She became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, give me children or I die. Jacob became angry with her and said, am I in the place of God who's kept you from having children? Then she said, here, take my servant. And this was common in the ancient Near East with the polygamy. Take my servant, sleep with her so she can bear children for me. And I too can bear a family through her. So Rachel is literally there at the birth. The child comes onto her knees and she adopts the child as her own. That's kind of how they did it and they thought. So she gave him her servant, Bill has a wife. Jacob slept with her. She became pregnant, bore him a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me. She called him Dan. Dan means God vindicates. Rachel's servant, Bilhah, conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, I have had a great struggle with my sister, but I've won. By the way, all of these names that they're giving their kids are what God has said he would be for us. All of them. It's interesting, isn't it? So he named him Naphtali. This is by the birthing of the 12 tribes of Israel. When Leah saw that she had stopped having children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. I can out-surrogate you, Rachel. Leah's servant, Zilpah, bore Jacob a son. It's like they had a scoreboard up on the... Then Leah said, what good fortune. She named him Gad, because Gad means the Calvary. Here comes the Calvary. Woohoo! It's going to be good. Leah's servant, Zilpah, bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, how happy I am. The women will call me happy. So she named him Asher. Well, friends, it just goes on and on. Reuben, the oldest, finds some mandrake plants, which were rumored to be aphrodisiac and, and a fertility plant. He comes home, and Rachel says, I want some of those. And Leah says to her, wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? Will you take away my son's mandrakes too? Very well, Rachel said. He can sleep with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. So when Jacob came in from the field that evening, Leah went out to meet him. You must sleep with me, she said. I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he slept with her that night. I call this Leah's relapse. Her addiction to Jacob comes back. And I've seen it, by the way, over and over and over again. But that's okay. How does God see this? God listened to Leah. And she became pregnant and bore Jacob a fifth son. Then Leah said, God has rewarded me for giving my servant to my husband. And she named him Issachar, which means reward. She conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has presented me with a precious gift. 
This time my husband will treat me with honor because I've borne him six sons. So she named him Zebulun. And sometime later she gave birth to a daughter named Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel. He didn't forget Rachel. He listened to her and enabled her to conceive. He saw her in her anguish too. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph, which means may the Lord add. The Lord adds. And may he add another son. And of course, God answered that, didn't he, by giving her Benjamin. And those 12 were the 12 tribes of Israel. There you have it, eh? So you see Leah with her seven, Bilhah two, Rachel two, and Zilpah two. In the Jesus Storybook Bible, I'll wrap it up with this. It says this. I love this. No one loves me, said Leah. I'm too ugly. But God didn't think she was ugly. And when he saw that Leah was not loved and that no one wanted her, God chose her to love her specially, to give her a very important job. One day, God was going to rescue the whole world through Leah's family. Now, when Leah knew that God loved her in her heart, suddenly it didn't matter anymore whether her husband loved her the best or if she was the prettiest. Someone had chosen her. Someone did love her with a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. So when Leah had a baby boy, she called him Judah, which means, this time, I will praise the Lord. And that's just what she did. And you'll never guess what, God, what job God gave Leah. You see, when God looked at Leah, he saw a princess. And sure enough, that's exactly what she became. One of Leah's children's children's children would be a prince, the prince of heaven. God's son. This prince would love God's people. And this is my favorite part. They wouldn't need to be beautiful for him to love them. He would love them with all of his heart, like Zacchaeus. And they would be beautiful because he loved them. Like Leah. The prophet Jeremiah said, this is what the Lord says. If you're wise, you're smart, don't boast in your smartness. Are you strong? You can move a rock by yourself? Don't boast in your strength. Do you have a lot of money? Are you tithing? No. Uh, don't boast in your riches. Are you beautiful? By some people's standards, don't boast in your beauty. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises first, compassion. Get the order. Compassion. Secondly, justice. Thirdly, righteousness. In that order, in that order, the law came through Moses, grace and truth. Through Jesus Christ. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. 
We sang about that God today, didn't we, with Travis? We sang about that God. I just wanted to sing and sing and sing and sing about that God. Wonderful, 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 beautiful, beautiful God. And as we look at him, we reflect him. So in conclusion, because the fullness of God's blessing rests on you through the good news, Paul said this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, vindication, belonging, victory, fortune, blessing. Every spiritual blessing is yours. You don't have to be something you're not. You don't have to be some, go somewhere else or do something different. You're blessed. Because the fullness of God's blessing rests on us through the gospel. You are free from the need to be anything or anyone other than who you are with God, created in his image, in community with him and others. Is that good news? Amen. Amen. There's some reflection things that are really good questions that are on your bulletin. And I would really encourage you to reflect on those in your own journal as well as with your home group. Let's stand together. Because he loves you with all his heart and made you, you are beautiful. Do you believe that? Yep. Veronica believes yeah. that. I do too. <laughs> Let me bless you. Holy Spirit, come. I pray for those who came in today disenfranchised, disconnected, lonely, wishing they were somebody else, maybe a different race, maybe a different gender. In order that they could feel love and be beautiful. And in the name of Jesus, I take the authority that you've given to me and I break that lie. I break that lie. I break the lie of rejection. I break the chains you are no longer slaves. You are free to be a child of God, a beloved son and daughter of the Most High God. So in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I bless you to walk in that, to walk in the Father's favor, the Son's delight, the Spirit's breath over you this week. And if you need more prayer, dear sister or brother, please don't leave before you let someone pray for you, either myself or some of our elders or a trusted friend nearby. We're going to kind of evolve into coffee break, and uh, particularly for Lynn. Lynn is very stressed this morning, so I'd like the preschool parents just to, to uh, uh, get down on time this morning and sign out and maybe bless her. Oh, she's, she's gone home. All right. All right, so if you need prayer... Uh, do that. 
We bless you to walk in his love and his grace. Thank you for listening. God bless you. Have a great week.